rather than go into any lengthy generic explanation of my existence. Suffice it to say that I am a genie. I can offer you four wishes with a guaranteed performance. Well, Mr. Castle, Mrs. Castle, what have you in mind? We're going to go for a joyride. You've just made a wrong turn heading south onto strange highways. Enter Death's waiting room, if you dare. Welcome back to Strange Highways. I am Paul. And I'm Kevin. And I'm confused because we were both on a different show like for the last two weeks and we weren't doing this show. And it's just weird hearing our music and then hearing you talk to me. It's just this whole weird thing going on. Yeah, it was it was kind of unplanned. Uh, you had your Talk Without Rhythm appearance and uh, the Monday after you were on, I got a text from uh, El Goro like, hey, you want to come on and talk some action? I was like, oh, yeah. I guess I got some movie cramming to do. <laughs> yeah. So if you guys did not get a chance uh, to hear our episodes that we did of Talk Without Rhythm, uh, go check them out. They, they were a lot of fun. Kevin's episode was awesome. They talked about some badass action films, and I stumbled my way through some science fiction films. So please oh, check yeah. them out. I think we both stumbled our way through. That. <laughs> um, so uh, but, fantastic but, show. So go check out Talk Without Rhythm. Absolutely. Uh, and, and again, thanks to Al Gore for having us on. Maybe maybe one day we'll both be on together on his show. That would be that'd be unique. Uh, but anyway, yeah. <laughs> um, enough about that. Let's get uh, get into the Twilight Zone, which we've been missing here. Uh, season two, episode two. The Man in the Bottle, uh, air date October 7th, 1960. Uh, a little bit of background uh, for that date. Uh, My Heart Has a Mind of Its Own, number one song by Connie Francis. High Time was the number one film uh, that week. Uh, this one's odd because it reached number one in its third week of release, which I don't think I have. You, you don't see that too much anymore where a film starts performing better like uh, as it's released in like wide release and becoming number one. Um, yeah. But this, I remember. Well, yeah. I think I think word of mouth had a lot more to do with uh, film success back then. That's true. There wasn't the the obnoxious marketing campaigns that you get today, where you're sick of a film by the time it even comes out. That's fair. Uh, so this film, I just want to mention uh, briefly. It's about a rich older Bing Crosby who goes to college at 51, and hijinks ensue. So it's like, why is this older guy at this college? Young kids just don't understand things. Like it was very much like the first movie to to address the idea of like a generation gap, but in a in like a screwball, stupid type of comedy. So not, not that anybody cares, but like that was a quirky idea back then. Yeah, uh, the only thing I have for this date, uh, just because it's one of my favorite movies of all time, but Spartacus was released on this day, oh, there October seventh, nineteen sixty. Um, a much a much more important film than uh, than High Time. Um, <laughs> I feel like High Time would be remade now with like an older stoner going to college, and they'd still keep the same name. Uh, For some reason, I kept thinking of How High. 
<laughs> Maybe that was the remake. <laughs> Very we just didn't different know. film. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so also on this date, Nixon and Kennedy had their second debate. Um, and also the television show Route 66 uh, premiered, which we remember from uh, Mirror Image, the, the the lead in that, he ended up in Route 66. So um, I thought that was a, a nice little interesting connection here. Um, and also, here's your actual thing that went on that no one knew about at the time. The CIA uh, prepared a box of poison cigars as one of several plans to assassinate uh, Castro. The cigars were delivered to a contact in Cuba, uh, but they were never used. So... That, that's like I like the idea that they actually made a box of poison cigars or the plan was put in place today and they just never did it. Hmm. Yeah, that's uh, kind of ties into this episode. I mean, the Maybe. death of a <laughs> the death of a leader. <laughs> I didn't think about it that way, but Castro Castro kind of kind of went on a little bit further than that. But uh, but yeah, that's your that's yeah. your history for that's your history for today. So um, let's just get into cast and crew. Cool. All right. This episode was directed by Don Medford, which we discussed we discussed in the Passage for Trumpet episode. So not going to go back into him. Uh, go back. Listen to that episode. Uh, episode was written by Rod Serling. Go figure. Based on the 1902 short story by W.W. Jacobs, uh, the uh, the monkey's paw. And it was kind of mixed in with the story of Aladdin's lamp from the Arabian Nights book. Um it's it's pretty close to the monkey's paw, though. It's a little bit more lighthearted. We'll get into the plot as it comes. Uh, I'll jump into cast here. We have Luther Adler as your main character, Arthur Castle. This was his only Twilight Zone appearance. Um, he was a big uh, actor on Broadway, and he ended up becoming a pretty famous director on Broadway as well. And uh, he got his start. His father was a big deal in Yiddish theater in New York, which was kind of where a lot of the Broadway actors came from was all the Jewish immigrants living there at the time. Um, but I assume the way Serling ended up catching up with Luther Adler was he worked on Playhouse 90 again. Yeah, and, there's and a that, lot se- of connections that there. seems yeah. like a place that he's been drawing a lot of actors from. The more I, the more I've been noticing that um, pretty much because uh, also the genie in this episode was on uh, Playhouse 90 as well. Yeah, and that makes sense because also he had a lot of his big critical success, uh, Sterling did, with Playhouse 90 before coming over. So I'm sure a lot of the actors were comfortable or knew, I mean, at least they knew of him, you know? Yeah. So that makes sense. Well, do you know, was he still writing for Playhouse 90, like, even after Twilight Zone started? No, he wasn't because of... No, um, okay. To my knowledge. That's what I figured. He He didn't have much time outside of Twilight Zone, but I was just curious if he still had some input into that at all. Yeah, not to my knowledge. And, it, um, and I'll say this right now, like normally how I find like trivia about the episode, like with those books I've been reading and everything, there's really nothing about, about this episode other than it was written to be under budget and it still went over budget. So <laughs> I'm sure CBS wasn't happy about that. And that Luther Adler, um, no, I'm sorry, Joseph Ruskin, uh, it was his first like big TV show he did that was taped. And so he was like taken aback by like, oh, they all, we do all these rehearsals, then we film. And he said it was the only TV show he ever did where they actually did that much prep time. So his his <laughs> view of television production was skewed because of the Twilight Zone. And that's all the trivia I have about the episode. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. Well, I should mention, uh, I guess I'll go to Joseph Ruskin next as the genie uh, that you just mentioned. Yeah. 
Um, I'll, I'll let you handle what he was in other than uh, he was in the Scorpion King. So I think it's the first actor that we've encountered that's worked with the rock on wow. Twilight Zone rock connection. So yeah, yeah. Um, that's, that's a rock fact. Yeah, that's a, yeah. Rock fact. Um, so Joseph Ruskin, pretty much his last name should be Star Trek because uh, he was in the original series DS nine uh, Star Trek insurrection. The film, he was in Voyager. He was an enterprise um, like, he was in pretty, I mean, pretty much, uh, surprisingly he's not next generation. So you think he would have hit for the cycle there, but he missed that. So that, yeah. uh, that's weird. Um, and he was also in an episode of the TV show, the wizard from the eighties where it had, um, the, 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 the little person that was the toy maker. I don't know if you remember that what I'm talking about it was on CBS. No, I've seen, I've seen the movie. Uh, well, no, know. that's a t- I don't think <laughs> that's well, I know. Thing. I don't think that's based on the TV show, but <laughs> yeah, you should you should watch the go look go to YouTube and find the intro to the wizard. It looks like the greatest worst TV show ever, and I remember watching it as a kid. But anyway, I just wanted to mention that Joseph Ruskin, who has a very distinct look about him, and I can see why he was in a bunch of Star Trek because with the way Star Trek is set up, they wouldn't do. Like and except for now, they've kind of broken some of these rules, but they wouldn't add like a lot of different things to faces. Like they wanted to keep all the faces like very human and and realistic because if it looked too goofy, you would lose the character. He has a very distinct feature, you know, and I could see why he was perfect for all things Star Trek. Yeah, he's got some crazy eyes for sure. Yeah. And some uh, Busey teeth going on when he <laughs> smiles. Some like, piano keys. That's true. Um, um, is that all you got for him? That's he all was I got. One, was, yeah. He was in uh, one other episode of the Twilight Zone. He does some voice work uh, in a later season. Um, so then we have uh, Vivi Janice as Edna Castle. And we talked about her. She was the wife in the fever. Yes. Uh, last season. Uh, basically playing the same role. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. And she like. I she was really good in this this I feel like this yeah, one more so yeah than the she fever. was a lot better there is a, a lot of emotion between her and uh, and Luther Adler's character yeah so it was good to see her and I I'd forgotten that that was her and uh, thankfully my wife pointed it out and I'm like oh yeah you're right so that was a nice uh, nice callback to the first season and there's more callbacks in this episode we'll get there we'll get there soon yeah uh, next we have Olin Soul as the IRS man and. I just I wrote him down because he was a character actor. He worked for a very long time, and he has like over 250 roles yeah. accredited to him. It's it's kind of insane when you run into those. We've run into a few actors that I just when I see their filmography, it's just astonishing how much they've done, and you have no idea who they are. Right, and so I challenge you, maybe not right now, but go check out his IMDb photo. It's the best thing ever. Um, and I, I dug through some of his stuff that he did and a couple things. He was the original voice of Batman on the super friends before. Oh, wow. Um, and he, he eventually moved aside. So Adam West <laughs> will take it over. Uh, did you look at his photo? It's, it's yeah. pretty great. <laughs> he just happens to be in the background. as a judge. That's a, <laughs> yeah. Right. They couldn't, they couldn't, they even couldn't get, a good get like a nice him. photo from this episode or right? something. Like I, I should submit him standing outside the storefront and be like, here you go. But he was like one of the, he was, he was a Batman and no one knew that. Or I should say people usually aren't aware that this guy's a Batman. Um, and also I looked up, he was in the original Battlestar Galactica, uh, and he was in Johnny midnight. Oh yes. Right. And also, I figured this is a movie you might know about, uh, 1955's Cult of the Cobra. 
Uh, not familiar with that one. Uh, American GIs who trespass on a Hindu uh, ceremony are hunted down by a beautiful woman who has the power to transform herself into a cobra. And I don't know why you just didn't buy that movie right now. Yeah, I'm actually on Amazon right now. What's that called again? <laughs> Cult of the Cobra. That's that's amazing. Sounds fantastic. <laughs> yeah, this guy's awesome. 20 di- oh, man, $20. <laughs> come on. But come on. She turns into a cobra. Oh, it's actually on a classic sci-fi ultimate collection. Uh, I might have this on one of those like big 50 classic sci-fi film box sets. That's awesome. Yeah, I might have to watch that. Nice. So, and uh, the the last person that I was Lisa Gulm, uh, who was Mrs. Ms. Gumley. I don't know if mm-hmm. you looked up anything about her. Um, I did not. The only thing I just noticed that this this was shot in uh, sixty, and she would die in sixty four, and this was like her third to last credit. So that was about all I had out of her was that she wasn't much longer for this world after the Twilight Zone. No, she looked it in this episode. No offense. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you're just stealing trash and selling it, but whatever. Anyway, we'll we'll get there. We'll get there. So that's that's yeah, not much. There's other people, but I don't know who they were, and that's that. So well, just just remember uh, that Luther Adler uh, was a pretty famous famous Jewish actor, <laughs> and uh, that's that's going to come back later. Yeah, uh, foreshadowing. All right, so yeah, let's just uh, get to the Sterling intro. Mr. and Mrs. Arthur Castle, gentle and infinitely patient people whose lives have been a hope chest with a rusty lock and a lost set of keys. But in just a moment, that hope chest will be opened, and an improbable phantom will try to bedeck the drabness of these two people's failure-laden lives with the gold and precious stones of fulfillment. Mr. and Mrs. Arthur Castle, standing on the outskirts and about to enter the Twilight Zone. These are odd now in this season because they come later, it feels, in the episode because they bring in Sterling to talk to the camera. So you already get like two or three minutes of story before he even talks. Yeah, uh, more so than that. I checked the time uh, as soon as his narration popped up. It was uh, six and a half minutes into the episode. Yeah, you're almost a third of the way through the runtime and he shows up, right? Like that's... uh you know, that's, I mean, it works. Don't get me wrong, but it just, it feels like we, we should tell the story and then get to the Serling bit now, as opposed to just letting him set the stage. Right. Uh, so, yeah. um, yeah. Uh, where, where do we start? All right. So Arthur and Edna castle, they own this, uh, rundown antique store and we catch up with them They're He's going through bills and find out that they're kind of having trouble making ends meet. So as he's doing that, an old woman, uh, Mrs. Gumley walks in and she's trying to sell him a family heirloom, quote unquote. And if he tells her it's, it's not worth anything, it's just a wine bottle. So she, you can tell she's kind of hard up and she's upset and she starts walking away and he feels bad and ends up like, Oh, I'll give you a dollar for it. So she's really happy. And, um, so Edna comes out and here's the cash register and everything. And here's the door shut. And she, realizes that he had just given her money for a empty wine bottle and she's uh she's kind of upset because they can't afford to be given handouts you know well and then further on though miss gumbly straight up tells uh, arthur oh i have to admit to you i found this in the trash and then she leaves I'm like <laughs> why would you do that like you've already guilted them to giving you a dollar don't just be like oh by the way you got had and then leave yeah well everybody in this episode is like super nice it, yeah. It's strange. Like you're right. They like they're really except for the genie. I question him, but uh, it, yeah, 
mean, I, I have my argument on that too. I think the <laughs> genie has good intentions. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but so, so uh, you're about to say, I'm sorry. Like, so they mention the bottle and, and something as they're talking, it tips over and it starts smoking. And then that's when Serling shows up. The reason why I mentioned that is because he's talking about how, how like pathetic and sad these people are. And they're right behind him as he's telling <laughs> the audience about it. He's just like these two losers in their loser store. Like Should I, I would have been like break the fourth wall and be like, uh, who are you? Like, <laughs> like, did you come out of the bottle? Like, uh, <laughs> we can hear you, you know, but yeah. So, uh, so yeah, th- there's smoke coming out of the bottle, and we hear very familiar music and sound effects. Yes, yeah, we definitely do. I thought you were gonna play them. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> so if you guys, I mean, if you've been following us and listening in order here, there's the episode "What You Need" from season one that has that very ethereal, like whatever noise that plays in the horns that play as well. And it's the exact same music cues that are in this episode and it still works, but because we've been like examining these episodes, like, like kind of taking a bigger look at them. It's, it's really hard not to unhear that and, and think of what you need, which is also an episode about objects that people, you know, like their desires. So I thought that was kind of appropriate. Yeah. So the genie appears and basically tells them that he is there and he can give them four wishes. Um, so Arthur decides he's going to test it and, they they're where the cash register is on the front counter. It's glass and it's cracked. And he's like, well, why don't you fix that? And we'll see. So Jeannie goes over and fixes it. So he's like, all right, I guess it's true. So immediately he ups the ante and he asks him for $1 million, which I thought was a surprising amount of money for this time. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause usually whenever they talk money in this, it's like, eh, you know, but <laughs> I, like, could you please give million- me $20? Yeah, well, a thousand dollars. But he asked him for a million dollars, which even today, like it seems, it seems like a something that you can relate to because it's like I could do a lot with a million dollars. So he says he wants a million dollars to appear on floor on the floor and all in fives, I believe. Something like that, yeah, like something uh, like that, yeah. So as soon as he says like uh, your wish is granted or whatever, the room starts raining money. And I really like that effect with it just raining down because it's it's the first sign that like you're not going to get things cleanly like things. It's not just going to be stacked up on the floor for you. Like, here we go. Well, and even the genie, the- when he lays out his rules is like, listen, there are repercussions to your what you request. Just mm-hmm. so you know, like basically, you know, like I'm letting you know that you're going to ask for something, but you're not going to think it all the way through. And, you know, so, yeah, so he, but he's real eager though. Like at first when they're testing his, his, uh, his credibility, they're like, well, we want to call the cops. He's like, well, I could bring you whatever police you want. Just wish it, you know? And he's trying to, you know, basically say, well, is that what you really want? And he's giving them all these options, which for someone that's been stuck in a bottle for hundred years, he knows a lot about the modern world, but that's a whole nother story, I guess. Yeah, that's fine. Whatever. <laughs> uh, so uh, again, they're, uh, they're such nice people. They decide to give out the money to the whole neighborhood. So everyone's just lined up taking stacks of cash. And, uh, you know, so as soon as everyone's gone, an IRS uh, agent comes in and basically tells them that they have to pay income tax on it. So it comes to I don't know what what's up with the math in this episode, <laughs> but the income tax on a million dollars comes out to something like. Nine hundred thousand, and some change like 
That's about that 10, is a, that's about ten percent. That makes sense. Is it no off of a million yeah. nine hundred thousand? Um. Oh wait, no. Wait, that's like ninety percent. No. Yeah, you're right. Wait, I'm sorry. You're right. It's like yeah, I should not. I should not have boldly stepped in and talked about math. There's my mistake. <laughs> I will back out of this conversation. You're right. That no, doesn't I'm, make sense. I'm not good at math, but like that's a lot of tax I, I, for a million dollars. Yeah. Yeah, like that's it seemed crazy, but whatever. So the IRS comes in, tax them on it, and it ends up leaving them with only five dollars more than they had before. So uh, Edna starts realizing, like, maybe we shouldn't mess with this. Like, whatever. Like, no harm done. Like, we're right where we were before. So Arthur starts getting full of himself, and he's like, I, I can do better this time. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he decides he's going to wish to get power. He wants to be the ruler of a country and the genie keeps prodding him. Like, make sure you're specific, make sure uh, you actually have like, think this through. So he's like, all right, I want to be a leader of a country, a foreign country, a contemporary foreign country from this century that can't be voted out of office. So that's when we get the first twist here. Yeah. So the, the genie's like, all right, I'll do that. And then immediately, and, I, and then the, this episode, I don't know why people kind of forget about it. I think that this transition is one of the greatest things I've seen so far in the series. It just cuts to like the, the shot of behind a guy sobbing at his desk. Uh, Cause you see, you see over his shoulder, there's a German officer like talking to him in German for like whatever, for a moment. And then you realize that that uh, Arthur Castle, he turns around and he is sobbing, realizing that he's become Hitler at the end of the war. And it is the greatest thing ever. Yeah. And his, his dialogue explaining that he's Hitler is so on the nose and so strange. I, I, I didn't know whether to laugh or be horrified. Cause even the fact that like that Serling, had this famous Jewish Broadway actor <laughs> playing Hitler is either the most terrifying punishment for a character ever or the greatest joke ever pulled in a twist of all time. Well, what wasn't the, the U-boat captain from uh, Judgment Night? Wasn't he also Jewish? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I think I remember talking about that. But this, like, as he's giving <laughs> the lines as Hitler, it's the first he's got like a very Jewish accent to him, like that New York Jewish accent to him. And it's it's so strange. Yeah. Having the swastika armband on and seeing the the Nazi flag in the background. It's it's very ballsy. It is. And you don't know like you don't know his heritage in the show. Uh, you know, it's, it's something they didn't really say other than the fact that this the shop that he works in is generational. So, like his reaction, like it still feels honest. It isn't like they, you know, it isn't like they sold up front that he is like Jewish descent. But then, yeah, you know, yeah. like it's him just directly saying it with like this utter just terror. Which, if if you're, I would imagine that anybody at that time, you know, if you fought for the side of the Allies and you wished to be a ruler of a country and you became Hitler, that would be like the worst, like most mortifying thing to happen to you, right? So, yeah, I can see how everybody would be just like shocked by that. Well, I thought this was fun, not to spoil how I felt about the twist. You know, the fun of this episode is, and any of these monkey's paw uh, stories, the fun of it is trying to figure out where they're going to screw up in the wish and what's <laughs> going to happen. You yeah. know, and it, it the first one with the money, like, it, not that shocking. It was kind of predictable. You know, like, something's going to happen with it. And, um, but this one, like, I should have seen it coming. 
<laughs> and, oh. But it was so much fun trying to figure out like where they were going with it. And then as soon as it happens, it, it, it dawns on you like, of course, of course. He couldn't have been more specific about who he was going to wake up as. Yeah, I, I, and I also liked it too that the German officer handed him a bottle of poison saying basically, you know, this is what you wanted, you know, like I'll be outside. And I like yeah. that. I like- so not only did he wake up as Hitler, but he woke up as Hitler on his last day alive. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I talk about Serling being cruel to his characters. And like I said, the Arthurs are such nice people. Like they're just trying to make things work out They're They're helping out their community. They're giving money away. You know, he asked for a million dollars and gave Eight and 60% of it away, you know, yeah. or more so than that. Like, it, they're such nice people. And <laughs> it's just a, a Serling sometimes. Like, this might be, if the ending wasn't what it was after this, like, this might be more devastating than Time Enough at Last <laughs> as far as punishments for characters that don't deserve it. But it's so abrupt the way he turns to the camera and says it. The the, the pacing of it, it, like I know we've talked about this before, it felt like something that was written for the scary door segments on Futurama. Like that immediate <laughs> turnaround, like I'm Hitler, you know, like that, that, that's what that feels like to me now. And I know that's years after, but I'm sure that they were inspired by moments like that to make yeah. that joke. No, and it is it is funny the way he delivers it because he's way on the nose about it. Yeah, and it makes you laugh, but like the more you think about it, it's it's devastating too. <laughs> so it is. It's just it, it's what I love about Twilight Zone is just able to blend so many different uh, genres and storytelling techniques like that. But I also like that he was given the choice of a bottle again. Like I, I I'm sure yeah. you know, like, the, cause you see in the foreground, like he's like you, after you have the shock of him being Hitler, uh, that bottle is so in the foreground, it's a much smaller bottle, but it, it's, it, it's, it looks in the frame, like size appropriate to the bottle in the beginning. And, yeah. he, and he has the choice of either drinking this and, you know, taking his life, you know, or, you know, as we find out, he uses his, his fourth wish to kind of go back to the beginning. But either way, he still has a choice of a bottle. And I thought that was kind of a nice duality there. Yeah. And it's a great transition back into. Yes. So he wishes everything to be back the way it was before. And he throws the bottle down on the ground and it transitions into the wine bottle from the beginning, hitting the ground in the antique store. It's there's been a lot of great transitions, but throughout the first season as we covered, but this is one of my favorites and there, there's a few really good camera effects that they do in this. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, cause we kind of, we rushed through the plot, but like it's a very, with, with the exception of, you know, Hitler town, th- everything takes place in the store and it's a very small set, but there's, um, like objects in the foreground and then objects in the background. So when the camera moves, there's some really good dynamic shots of it moving through the store, like as they're walking and talking and you get some really good setups and some really good, like uh, depth and, uh, like just texture of all the objects. And yeah, they just they do a good job making a small set interesting. They yeah. keep it interesting and they shoot it from different angles. Uh, you know, there's just so much going on. There's so much to look at. And uh, I've always been a fan of antique stores and films, and especially as far as like anthology films and everything. Um, one of my favorites is From Beyond the Grave, which I covered uh, a while ago on uh, Radio Violenta when that was going Um that it, basically all the stories take place on 
coming out of this antique store, when people come in and buy an item, we follow them and go to that store. And I just, I love it. And it, even like Guillermo del Toro and Kronos and mm-hmm. stuff like that. It's such a great setting. And this is one of those ones I'm sure was an inspiration to most of those uh, films. Yeah, for sure. I was really, really hoping that amongst all the objects, I was hoping to find the slot machine from the fever hiding in there somewhere. And I was really, really hoping for that crazy racist clock that Mr. Beavis had. Like I was really (laughs) hoping to sneak in there. I definitely could have seen that sitting back there. Yeah. But that wouldn't have been an antique at that point. That's, you know, you're right. But you know, but I think it'd been great just to kind of like, I don't know. It would have been great to have some nods to some of like, not that, not that they necessarily would think that way. Cause I mean, there are clearly as we cover some of these episodes, they know what they're doing. But that's your, uh, yeah, that's that's your Marvel uh, mind frame speaking right now. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, not that I need we to have to create the universe. <laughs> well, I mean, talk about the universe. I'm pretty sure that storefront that they use is the same one from Passage from Trumpet or Passage for yeah. Trumpet. Um, no, that's because they only had uh, access to certain uh, sets. Right. But uh, so. So, yeah, like he wishes everything back. Uh, his wife's like, what happened? You look, you know, so you look terrible, you know, whatever. And he's just like, oh, maybe, you know, maybe our lives aren't as bad as we thought they were. Maybe we could put on a new coat of paint and give this one a shot. And they have a nice little sweet moment as they're sweeping up the bottle. And then they're like, well, at least we came out ahead. And they look at the glass that had been fixed. And then as they're talking about it, he ends up putting the broomstick into the glass, breaking it again. And they kind of are like, all right, well, we're completely back to where we started. And they kind of have a laugh about it, which is actually a really nice way to end the episode. It is. It's lighthearted. And uh, this is why, you know, it talked about the genie's intentions. I I think he ended up teaching them a nice lesson. <laughs> so we learned a little. Think, we laughed a little, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and they're they're happy with where they are now. And I, I see. I feel like the genie was also super nice. <laughs> I don't know. I think he was a dick, and because he also basically straight up told them he's like, you know, the frustrations that you're feeling during all of this. He's like, this seems to be a, a human nature type of thing. Like he was commenting on how every time somebody gets the opportunity to take these wishes, they go through the same stages of, you know, whatever of wish having, you know. And yeah. he's kind of he's stating it as like, you know, don't worry, you know, you're not alone. But it's also conf- like not confusing to him. It's just kind of intriguing that he sees the same pattern over and over again. Yeah, and I, I guess that laugh doesn't help his cause either. No, that laugh is awesome. And like, it, like, you should not maniacally laugh if you're trying to teach somebody a good lesson, <laughs> right? So, um, but yeah, I just I like the genie a lot, and I and I, I've admitted this on the show many times that like uh, always like I guess the the agent of of decision or the agent of you know fate. You know, Doctor Fate or whatever—not Doctor Fate. That's DC character, but Mister Fate from Mr. you know, Fate, yeah. yeah, and Mister Death and you know, uh, Pip and all those—not Pip, yeah, Mister Pip, yeah, um, all these guys. Like, I love, I love those characters, and this is another one of those. You know, like, like well, well manicured suit, nice hat, smoking a cigarette, taking his time. He has all the time in the world because once they get all their wishes, he's back in the bottle for one hundred and one years. You know, so I, I, I appreciated his uh, his performance. Yeah, this mystical, all-knowing character was not as jolly as the other ones, though. That's true. <laughs> we'll say that. Yeah. He was uh, very snake-like. Yeah, that's that's a good uh, way to, like, very much, like, tempting, like, you're right, like, the Garden of Eden with the apple. Like, is this what you really want? You know, type of thing. Yeah. I kind of like that. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I just, uh, I, I like this episode. It seems like this is kind of one of those ones that people kind of sweep off into the pile of, you know, like, average 
I just feel like with the Hitler twist, like this one should get more attention because that's a very like dark twist that I think maybe later on they wouldn't turn it to comedy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was actually shocked. I thought I had seen this, but I, I think I was thinking of uh, the tales from the crypt film. Um, but yeah, I, I was shocked that they went where they did. Like I said, this episode, the only word I can think of hit for that twist is just ballsy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. I just, I, I couldn't believe it. Yeah. Um, so my question though is like, so everything's been reset. So did the people lose their money that they gave all the money to? So are they now just waiting for an angry mob to show up and be like, Hey, you know, you gave us all this money. It's not here anymore. You know, like I'm just waiting. Cause I, cause everything got reset, but the, but they were aware that everything got reset. So it makes me wonder what happened to all the money. Yeah. I don't know. That's a, that's a good question. Cause if everything went back the way it was before, you would think that nobody would have any memory of any of this happening at all. Yeah. So it it's kind of questionable in that sense, but I don't think you're supposed to think about it that far. <laughs> no, no. Um, but yeah, I just I really I really like this episode. It was a nice breezy, yeah, it, quick, you know. That that was the word I was going to use. It's it's a breezy watch. It's it's not the best we've seen. It is far far from the worst, and I I think it's above average. Um, it's. Uh, you know, I, I love the monkey's paw story. I actually listened to, uh, I found Christopher Lee in the mid two thousands did a BBC radio show called fireside tales where he, uh, read short stories and I listened to the monkey's paw episode that he did. And, uh, I forgot how terrifying that short story actually oh, is. Yeah. Oh my God. And, uh, this has a much lighter tone than the actual monkey's paw story. But I, I think it works for the twilight zone. It has that very like fantasy vibe to it. And I I'm, I'm a fan of this one. Yeah, me too. And talking about like the monkey's paw, cause you're, you're talking about the, the part where the was it the mother that wishes the son back and he's yeah. knocking at the door and you realize that like, yeah, he's back, but he may not be the same way because he got torn up in a, like a, a machine accident or something. If I remember the story, right. Yeah. Like, he asked for 200 pounds and oh, uh, yeah. he, he got the life insurance from his son dying at work in a machine. And so the wife decides to ask for uh, uh, for the son to come back to life. And he's like, no, you don't want this. <laughs> you don't know how he's going to show back up. And so at the last minute, as she's about to open the door, he uh, wishes that he did not come back alive. And um, everything is fine from there. But you never know what was behind that door. And yeah. I... I it's a beautiful little short story. I think it's a great piece of literature and it's, it's informed so many horror movies and so many stories, uh, since then. Cause I mean, that was written in 1902. Yeah. I mean, well, because the whole, the whole mechanism of a wish, like there's no technology for that. Right. So it could still like the concept can still hold up over time, you know? Yeah. And there's, I think- there's so many ways you can get to the wish. It doesn't, you know, the genie in the bottle is something that, uh, at this time was starting to get popular and a few years after this, we'll start seeing I dream of genie. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it, this was kind of that mashup of the two, but I mean, there's so many ways you can get to the idea of a wish and that concept. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I was going to, I was going to mention while we're talking about the plot, like, cause we're as watching this again. 
I was watching it with 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 my wife, and she'd never seen it before. And I mentioned to her, I was like, when they first mentioned the first wish, you know, because uh, he was given four wishes, because I like that that was four, not three, like every other story we we see. Because it's like yeah. you have to have the test wish. You gotta have the test wish. Don't want to ruin the other three. And I like it when he would ask him, like, can you fix this glass? I was waiting for him to go and make a phone call and then have it replaced and then hand him the bill and be like, here you go. Your glass is replaced. You know, your wish is granted. <laughs> like, I was waiting for just a moment of just like, yeah, I, I can just call somebody. Now you owe more money. Like, I was waiting for something like that. That would have been great. Um, but they, he actually just, he genied it up and fixed it. You know, I was hoping for a yeah. practical solution to that problem. But it ends up broken at the end anyway. That's true. So. Um, so do you so ha- it never was fixed. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, so you mentioned like uh, the the monkey's paw stuff, and I know you reached out to people before we were recording and asked like what people's favorite like monkey's paw story. Like which one other than the Christopher Lee? Is there something else that that you like you really like the be careful what you wish for type of thing like this? Yeah, um, my buddy Grim brought up a fantastic movie. I think I mentioned it one of the episodes in season one that we talked about a careful what you wish for type story. I forget which episode it was, um, but I think I mentioned Death Dream, the Bob Clark film. Yeah, you did. Um, yeah, that that is still quite possibly the creepiest adaptation of that story I've ever seen. It's a soldier who dies in uh, Vietnam and the parents want their son back so bad. Um, that basically he comes back, but he's, he's dead. It's terrifying. And he's like this vampire zombie mix of a creature. And, uh, I mean, it's the director of Christmas story, but, um, (laughs) it is by far one of those films that has affected me for a very long time since I've seen it. So I got to give it to that. Um, I love (laughs) somebody brought up the, uh, tree house of terror episode. (laughs) Where, where Homer orders the the sandwich and he makes very specific uh, details about the sandwich and eventually he gets his turkey sandwich and he eats it. He's like, this is pretty good. It's a, it's a little dry. It's a little dry. And he's just like, you know, bemoaning <laughs> that it's dry. Um, I love the monkey's paw and the Rick and Morty episode. Um, oh, I forget what it's called. Uh, basically, they go to the Needful Thing store uh, there and uh, something happens where someone has to use a monkey's paw to like in, in quick order of the devil's hanging himself. So they use the monkey's paw to move a desk to get up and undo the, like the knot and then do CPR. And it was like real quick, like, like very mundane wishes that burned out the paw. And I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, it's good. Um, yeah, I, I, I will also, uh, post a YouTube link to that, uh, Christopher Lee reading of the oh, monkey's yeah. paw. Cause, uh, you know, we're getting close to the Halloween season as much as, uh, Paul wants to deny it. <laughs> <laughs> It's August third as we record this. I don't. It's it's August third. That's all I'm gonna say. All right, so we're getting close, <laughs> and uh, this might be something. Uh, uh, this might be fine. something you want to check out. So I, yeah. I'll post it in the Facebook if you yeah. want to listen to it uh, on a hot summer night or on a <laughs> on a nice cool fall evening. There you go. It'll be there for you. Perfect. Um, I, I was just going to mention real quickly here. You talk about like, be careful what you wish for, which it's the same. It's not always the same thing. I feel like a lot of Twilight Zone is be careful what you wish for. Uh, the thing that terrified me the most as a kid is actually another episode of the Twilight Zone from the eighties. And it was about this father who had a son who was mentally challenged, but the son had this special ability that he could bring anything to himself. Like he could look at a magazine and find like a toy and see, he'll say, bring me and it'll show up. And 
you, you think about it and it's like that seems innocent enough but then you see this house where it's boarded up the father's just disheveled like the tv has been destroyed like because this kid's getting older and he's asking for things that like, he can bring inanimate objects to him but if it's a living object it shows up dead and it is it it bothered me as a kid because they talked about how he uh, couldn't look at photos of his mother in a photo album because the mother had passed away and the father just knew the kid would see that and want her and it was just terrifying to me and i just i don't know what it was about that episode but i even talk about it right now it gives me goosebumps it was just freakish yeah i ha- i haven't seen that but it does sound quite terrifying yeah so when we get there i'll be scared talking about it so just anyway so um yeah i i like this episode it was nice and lighthearted. other than the hitler stuff it was it was a nice lighthearted run i I don't know how you could include hitler and say it was a lighthearted episode but they did it and i appreciate it yeah um the only other thing i wanted to bring out uh when i reached out trying to get people's favorite adaptations of monkey's paw we got an email from our uh friend ryan yeah. Um, it, it, did you want to go into it? Oh, okay. I didn't know if you were going to read it. I was just like, yes, we did. Uh, so, so Ryan wrote to us, and you guys can also write to us at, at Strange Highways Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, He's like, I expect you at least make reference to the classic Tom Hanks role in Big. I'm curious to see what your opinions are on that one. I don't think I've ever heard either of you talk about it before. I love Big. I think that movie's awesome. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I remember enjoying it a lot growing up. Yeah, I, I haven't seen it since I was a child either, so I, I can't speak to it much now. But I was actually just discussing it recently. Um, I was listening to a, a band, and the cover of the album was Zoltar. <laughs> and uh, I, I brought up Big, and I, I was trying to remember if that was the name of it, but it sure was. Um, yeah, I enjoyed it as a kid, and it definitely fits in to the monkey paw narrative yeah and uh, when i was out in vegas uh last uh last september there was a whole store in the caesar's like place the caesar's compound i don't know that had all these memorabilia <laughs> the pl- caesar's is huge uh, it's all i could say caesar's like, bunker yeah pretty much <laughs> you're like oh i am caesar now you know anyway uh they had a zoltar machine there and you could put quarters in and it didn't give me a um it didn't give me a card so i don't know if you're supposed to put quarters in but i did and, but I, did, I didn't get a fortune but i was super happy to see a zoltar machine yeah, it's awesome. But yeah, Big's a good movie. Like it, it's I, I don't know if you could make that kind of movie now because he's like what, like a, a 10, 11 year old that gro- that becomes an adult that ends up like, you know, working at a toy company or a video game company or something, but he ends up like having a romance and then the entire time you realize this is an adult woman that is like, you know, in a relationship with the person that's basically eleven years old or whatever. And it's like that that gets a little weird if you start thinking about it too much. Yeah, that was something that happened a lot in the 80s. I don't know what it was. You mean uh, in movies or just in there, general? Wasn't there something like blank check like that? Kind of. Yeah, where um, there was a love interest that was way too old for the main yeah. character. Um, so, yeah. so, yeah, I don't know if you could go ahead and, and do that now. Like, And I think that 13 going on 30 movie with uh, Jennifer Garner is kind of the same thing, too. You know, but... Uh, but yeah, Big's awesome, and, and thank you for bringing that up. That's actually a really good example of this kind of wish fulfillment, you know, like literally in that movie, and then also learning something from it. Yeah, well, that's come up uh, twice now in two weeks, so I guess I'm due for a rewatch. There of you it. go. Uh, so, do you have anything else about the episode proper? Um, I do not. Nope. Okay. I got through all my notes. There you go. So uh, I just want to just tie in something just real briefly. I, I don't have anything about wishes. So like, I couldn't look at any true stories of wishes coming true. Um, other than like all the make-a-wish stuff that John Cena does. He, he makes everybody's wishes come true. Uh, <laughs> so 
I kind of went with the, the angle of, of uh, found objects that might be worth money. So have you? There's a documentary that came out uh, in 2006 called "Who the Bleep Is Jackson Pollock." Do you know that documentary or no? Uh, I've I've seen it floating around. I haven't watched it. Um, it's a really cool documentary. It's about this uh, older lady. She's in her 70s. She's a, a truck driver from California who purchases a painting from a thrift store for five dollars. And then later on, people are thinking that it might be a Jackson Pollock film, not film, a Jackson Pollock painting. And so she goes on this whole quest to try to get it verified. And it becomes this whole question of like opinion of like, what is art? And you get the vibe that like the artist community, because this trucker lady found this at a thrift store, that can't possibly be a Jackson Pollock. So they would shut her down every single time she tried to find more information about it. And the way they go trying to verify if this is actually a Pollock canvas or not using forensic science is really interesting. And it also kind of shows that a lot of art is just opinion and perception as opposed to fact. And it's a really cool documentary. And like it, the, the whole thing that this thing could actually have been worth like millions. And she found it at a thrift store. It's a, uh, it, it kind of it challenges your, your idea of like, um, like if someone's like, well, that's not entirely the style of Pollock. Like, who are you to say that? Like, do you know every single canvas he made? And that's yeah. the kind of discussions they would have. Um, but it was uh, it, it was a good it was a good documentary and entertaining. Frustrating but entertaining. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. It sounds fun. It is fun. So, um, so yeah, that's that's going to do it for my notes for for the episode and also for for that. So, um, let's just yeah, let's just rate the twist. I'll let you go first. This is your first time watching it. All right. Um, I'm going to give it a four out of five on the twist because as much as I thought I was going to be able to figure this episode out, uh, it went way farther than I thought it would. And it, that twist was hysterical and terrifying at the same time. <laughs> so got to give him credit with that. And I love the second twist of the glass breaking again um, was very charming. So. Between the two, I'm just going to go with a four out of five. You know, I had this as a three. I think I'm going to go with a four because I, you know, I'd seen this one previous to us even doing the show. So I knew because I, I think if we listen to the previous episode, I even told you that it gets dark for a second. Uh, but I remembered that moment because it was so striking, right? So uh, I would give it a four as well because I do like as much as I didn't like the additional bit at the end of King Nine, I didn't feel like it was necessary. I feel yeah. like them breaking the glass and starting all the way over again. Is, is is pretty perfect so yeah i'll give it a four as well yeah and with the effect of the the uh bottle coming back together in the trash can i i thought that was pretty impressive how that they was did cool. that um and I, I like the fact that like it's that never-ending story like it's just going to keep happening and happening over and over again as people find it yeah so so overall a pretty solid episode yeah i was, I, I I was impressed so, I mean, I feel like it was a good bounce back after after the previous episode. So I, I enjoyed it. So, um, so yeah. Uh, so, Kevin, other than the, the email we just read, how other, how can people get a hold of us? Um, if, yeah, if you don't feel like emailing us, you can find us on Facebook, uh, Strange Highways. Send us a message on there. Uh, comment on the post. Paul's always doing a great job posting images and stuff. And uh, I'm trying to get better at posting things. Uh, <laughs> I posted two things today. So. I saw that. I was like, oh, yeah. exciting times. Yeah. Uh, trying to get better. But yeah, you can find us on Facebook and contact us on there. But if you do want to email us again, it's strange highways podcast at gmail.com. And then if you aren't already subscribed, you can find us on iTunes, strange highway or iTunes, Stitcher and Google play music. Um, you can subscribe and rate us on there. It would definitely help us out. And I think that's about it. Yeah. 
And so next episode is Nervous Man in a $4 Room. I like that title. Uh, uh, sounds like an Italian shallow or something. <laughs> it, it sounds like a Google Translate that didn't go quite well. You know, like yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, it sounds like, like it. an Italian film. I like it. <laughs> so it, what Serling said to tease the episode, and I'm going to try my best not to butcher this here. I, I know Kevin tried doing music last time, so we'll see how that goes well, as I'm reading this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, that doesn't yeah, fit. that's All very right, serious. Yeah. Uh, next week, we take you into this eight by eight hotel room and we watch a penny Annie crook make a decision. You uh, better ask the room clerk the number of this room and then come on up. Mr. Joe Mantell is the nervous man in a four dollar room. That doesn't tell me uh, anything about the episode. Yeah. So uh, good tease. Good tease, Rod. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, that, that's that's it. Uh, we're gonna be we're gonna be some nervous men in a four dollar room next week, and may all your wishes come true this week, but with no repercussions. Uh, that's yeah. you know. I was gonna say more like nervous men on a four dollar mic. Oh, Ooh, <laughs> I like it. No, my uh, mic's my mic was kind of expensive. <laughs> <laughs> all, right. all right. I guess I guess until next week, uh, don't become Hitler. I'm Hitler, I'm in a bunker, it's the end of the world!